What a blessing it's been in study this week, preparing for this lesson and, and the lessons that are going to be following. Uh, we're continuing to study details about the temptations of Christ. And I just want to remind you a little bit of the fact that God wants you to be prepared. Do you know that, friends? God wants you to be prepared for attacks. But He also expects you and wants you to shore up areas of your life that are susceptible to Satan's attacks. You know what they are, don't you? Let's peer into the mirror for a second. We know what those areas of our lives are that need to be shored up, that need to be tightened up so that we can be strong against the attacks of the enemy. Last week we learned that in our temptations... We must be alert after high points. Jesus had just submitted to baptism, and as he rose out of the water, a voice, the voice of God, echoed from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Truly a red-letter day in the ministry of the Lord. It was this statement that statement by God that said, this is my son, that Satan was going to attack. He attacked that. If he could prove just for a minute, if he could strive to get Jesus to renounce, whether in word or in deed, that he was God's son, then you and I would have no hope. Amen? We have to be alert after high points. But we also have to be watchful when we find ourselves weak. When you find yourself weak emotionally, weak spiritually, weak physically, you need to be strong. If you want to overcome temptation to sin against God, you are going to have to remain strong. How do you do that? Well, I shared with you, if you will just intentionally, if you will deliberately hang out with the people of God, in the house of God, praying to God, studying the word of God, and applying it to your life to the glory of God, you're going to be far better off than you are if you're away from God. You'll find most people realize that the temptations are the strongest when they're not coming to church. They feel attacked. Friends, I can't be away from you guys more than a couple of days. And I begin to feel vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. That's why I think that the Wednesday morning Bible study has become so critical. People come to be shored up. They come to be strengthened so that they can re resist the attacks of the enemy. Satan attacks feeble people. Did you hear that? Satan attacks the feeble. And if you're not making yourself strong, then you're feeble and you are susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. So make sure that you're alert after a high point. Make sure that you're watchful when you're weak. But we also need to be on guard when we find ourselves alone. When you isolate yourself from family, when you isolate yourself from friends, when you isolate yourself from the church, from the people of God, you are going to find yourself at greater risk of temptation than if you hang with the people. Amen? Get this. When a lion hunts, what a lion tries to do, 
A lion tries to isolate one of the animals from the herd. And he goes after that isolated animal in order to devour him. But get this. If you're listening, say amen. Get this. If the prey cannot be isolated from the herd, more times than not, the lion gives up. So it is with that roaring lion seeking to devour your soul. If you hang out with the herd, and I'm not calling you a bunch of cows, but if you hang out with the herd, if you hang out with the church, if you'll stay in the Word, if you'll keep praying to God, if you'll keep seeking after Him, you'll have much more success in resisting the attacks of the enemy. So be aware of your situation, right? Make sure that you're alert after a high point in your life. Make sure that you're watchful when you're weak. Make sure that you're on guard when you find yourself alone. But you better be alert to his strategy, too. The enemy has got a tried-and-true strategy. Now, well, you need to be reminded that Satan cannot force you to sin. He cannot force you to accept the temptation that he offers you. He's not all-powerful. He's not ever-present. And he's not all-knowing. He can't force you. He can't make you do anything. But boy, oh boy, he sure does succeed a lot of times, doesn't he? Why is that? Because he has a tried and true strategy of attacking us. Here's how it goes. First thing he does, tosses out the bait. He tosses out the bait. He notes your habits. He notes your desires. He notes your appetites. And he observes with who you hang out. He observes where you hang out. And then he prepares a lure and tosses it right in front of your nose. Then he makes an appeal. As I mentioned, he cannot make you take the bait. He can't force you to take the bait. But he does know this. He knows that when you see it, that you're going to be drawn to it. You're going to linger over it. You're going to toy with it. You're going to roll it over and over in your mind until it consumes your thoughts. He knows you're pretty good. And then the struggle begins. Then the struggle begins. Your conscience has already been warned. You've even seen the consequences, maybe, of you falling to this temptation. But then the temptation comes to an end and calls for a response. You can either resist it or you can yield to it. You can either swim away as fast as you can from that lure, or you can swallow it whole. That strategy is as old as humanity itself. It's been going on since the beginning of mankind. But it's tried, and it's true. It's tried, and it's true, and it always works on those who are caught unaware. 
now you're aware. Amen? Now you're aware, so there's no excuse. So, what is then the sole purpose for these temptations of Christ? The sole purpose for the temptations of Christ was not to see if he would sin, but to show, to prove that even under tremendous pressure, our holy example would do nothing but obey the word of God. Beginning today, we're going to study three specific ways that we're tempted to sin against God, and we're going to see three ways by which you and I can respond as followers. Say followers. If you're a believer, you ought to be a follower. So we're going to discover three ways that you can be a follower. So I guess what we need to do then from now on is we just need to do what this fellow says. Tonight, we are going to witness the most anticipated match in the history of professional wrestling for the heavyweight championship of the world. Are you ready? fans, are you ready for the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world from the capital city of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready. rumble indeed because the devil is fighting for your soul and if you give up without a fight the curse will be on you so let's be reminded first of all what Jesus did in this greatest heavyweight bout in Matthew chapter 4 then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights guess what <laughs> he was hungry. Is that a no-brainer or what? Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, you're going to be hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The first temptation that we're going to study tonight, or this morning, the first temptation of Jesus was to the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. In John chapter 2, John gives us some divine instructions that we can use to overcome temptation. Listen carefully. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the Bible says, Believers... Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. 
And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the New Living Translation records Paul addressing some believers in that city. And here's what he said. He said, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the day Jesus comes again. What does that tell you and I? That tells you and I that there can, you can only be tempted in one of three areas. Because that's all there is. Alright? There's only three areas of your life that can possibly be tempted. The human being is composed of a body, a spirit, and a soul. Now, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said that we are to bring our bodies under subjection. So what in the world does that mean? To bring our bodies under subjection. What that means is this. We need to train our bodies to do what it should, not do what it wants. Amen? Because these bodies have appetites that can be tempted. Amen? So we need to bring these bodies under subjection, training it to do what it should do, not what it wants to do. Amen? So, what was the first way then that Jesus was tempted? He was tempted in the lust of the flesh. He was tempted in his body. Now, this temptation echoes of one you're familiar with in Genesis. You remember it. Adam and Eve were warned about the fruit of that tree that was over in the midst of the garden. And God said, you shall not eat of it. Nor shall you touch it, lest you die. But in verse 6, we know that the serpent tempted Eve, and she saw that tree. And she saw that that tree was good for something. She saw that that tree was good for her body. That that tree, as the Bible says, was good for food. And lest you think that this was a female problem, I want to bring your attention to the fact that the Bible goes on to say, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Nice husband. Amen? Anyway, friends, when we gratify our natural base desires, when we choose the pathway of comfort instead of seeking after the righteousness of God and the kingdom of God, here's what happens. The lust of the flesh takes over. Tempter says, you have to live, don't you? You have to live, don't you? But God says in Galatians 5.16 that we are to walk in the Spirit so that we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit. So what I want you to do is I want you to notice in this greatest heavyweight bout of the world between the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that one that's called the tempter, the devil, Satan, the devil begins with a body shot. Amen? 
He begins with a body shot. Notice in verse 3. Now the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be bread. The survival of the body. It's man's most basic need for this body to survive. Self-preservation. I mean, it's an instinct that doesn't require a whole lot of thought. I want to live. I want to preserve this body. Despite disease, despite injury, the human body yearns and struggles to survive. And while I know that there are limits, I am absolutely amazed at what people can do to their bodies and get away with it. I am amazed at what people can do to their bodies and still survive. I am amazed at the habits we have and we still live to tell about it. I'm amazed at the choices we make and we still live to tell about it. In 2007, one of the world's top 10 skydivers, Michael Holmes, uh, had more than 7,000 jumps under his belt. But at that, on that day, he narrowly escaped tragedy after jumping from an airplane 12,000 feet in the air. At about 5,000 feet, he pulled his main parachute, and it deployed, but it got tangled up in his backpack, and it was totally ineffective. So a few minutes later, he cut away that main chute, and he pulled his reserve chute. But that reserve chute failed to inflate. So with a camera attached to his head and plummeting 80 miles an hour down to the earth, he simply said to the camera, I'm dead. Goodbye. But to the shock of onlookers, he survived the ordeal with only a collapsed lung and a broken ankle. But I wonder if he bounced. Amen? Friends, first of all, you need to know that this was the exception, not the rule. Why would somebody jump out of a perfectly fine airplane? I mean, God wonderfully made our bodies to survive, even when we do stupid stuff. Amen? So don't tempt the Lord your God. So the devil began round one of this heavyweight bout of the world with a body shot to Jesus. Knowing Jesus had fasted for 40 days, the devil hit him right where he thought it was going to hurt the most. In his hunger. In his hunger. To rephrase verse 3, the devil suggested to Jesus these things. He said, since you are God's son in whom he is well pleased, why doesn't your father feed you? The devil said to Jesus, why would you, if you are the son of God, why would he lead you out into this miserable wilderness anyway? The devil said, I mean, you're God's son. You are the son of God. You shouldn't have to experience human hunger. Satan said to Jesus, 
you have the power of God at your avail. I mean, surely your father would want you to satisfy your hunger. Why don't you use your divine strength? The devil said to Satan, or the devil said to Jesus, doesn't your father love you? Why don't you just turn these, these few rocks into bread? Why don't you just eat a bite? You're famished. You'll feel better. And as the devil tried to exploit the appetite of Jesus' flesh, Jesus must have been very tempted. You know why? Because Jesus was very hungry. Amen? But here's the problem with you and I. You and I don't know what it's like to be hungry. I don't know about you, but I've rarely missed a meal. I don't know what it's like to really be hungry. I don't know how many times I've said it, but I've said, man, I'm starving to death. Get me to the table. But I don't know what it's like to be hungry. You don't know what it's like to be hungry because very few of us have ever experienced what it's like to be really hungry. On November 17th, 2009, CNN reported that somewhere in the world, a child dies of hunger every five seconds. One, two, three, four, five. 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 One, two, three. Four, five. Was one of those your child? Can you imagine your child starving to death? The UN Secretary General, whose name was Ban Ki-moon, said, Today, more than one billion people are hungry. And six million, say six million. Six million children die every year from hunger. Do you know what that means? Friends, that means that hunger, say hunger. Hunger kills 16,000 kids every day. I can't even count that. And 16,000 plus kids die every year. I can't imagine one of our CIA children dying because they didn't have no food. But worldwide, 16,000 die because they have no food. And here's the kicker. People in the United States Spend about 300 billion, say billion, 300 billion dollars a year eating out. 
They spend $300 billion eating out while only sending about $3 billion in food overseas. You see, we've never experienced hunger. I think that if, had we, if we could experience it, if we could know the pain of malnutrition, if we could know the pain of hunger, we'd think differently about it. But we don't know hunger like Jesus did. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus knew hunger. He experienced malnutrition. Jesus knew the weakness that comes when you don't have any food to eat. Jesus knew it. But I want you to look at how the undisputed champion of love responded to the arch enemy of God. Jesus countered with a right cross. He took a body shot, but he responded with a right cross. Let's read about it in verse 4. But he answered, Jesus answered and said, It is written. You know what it is written means? That means God said. Amen. I'll never forget. Man, when my mama had to tell me something twice, she would say, I said. And when that went down, I knew I better do it. I said, Jesus is saying, God said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. A right cross. See, Jesus didn't get into a discussion with Satan like Eve did. He saw right through the devil's schemes. He was well aware of the Father's plan to get this. Save you. Jesus was well aware of the Father's plan to save us. And so he knew his mission led to the right cross. That was the Father's plan. This was the Father's will. And so Jesus refused to seek material comforts just so he might feel better. He knew that when we put our physical needs ahead of our spiritual needs, do you know what we do? We sin. Are you hearing me, church? When you put your physical needs ahead of your spiritual needs, you Sin against God. We are spiritual beings only living in a physical body. You need more from the spirit than you can get from the world. You need more for your spiritual self than you do for your physical self. See, the power behind Jesus' punch was his knowledge and his Observance, his knowledge and his obedience to the word of God. See, he, he had a successful response because he demonstrated not only that he knew the word, but that he was willing to obey that word as well. So, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If you are, say amen. Do you know the word? Are you obeying the word? 
Are you really a follower of Christ? Do your spiritual needs far outweigh your physical needs? If you're a follower of Christ, they do. You see, Jesus faced this enemy not as a man. Uh, excuse me, he faced this enemy as a man, not as the Son of God. He faced this enemy as a human being just like us. Never think that God, that Jesus used godly power to win this battle. Never think for a second that Jesus used divine strength in order to defeat the enemy in the greatest heavyweight battle of the world. Because he didn't. See, that's exactly what Satan wanted him to do. Satan wanted him to use his godly strength to win the fight. All so that we would have no hope. So what did Jesus do? He responded by quoting a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And in that chapter, in Deuteronomy 8, 3, God was teaching the nation of Israel how to depend on him. And he wants you and I to learn the same lesson. Listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 8, 3. He said, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land, which I have set apart for you. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you. You know, you can't receive Jesus until you've been humble. To humble you and to test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments of God or not. So he humbled you and he allowed you to hunger and he fed you with manna from heaven, which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your spiritual needs far outweigh any physical needs you will ever have in this life. Spiritual. So in other words, Jesus countered by saying things like this. Hey, Satan, food may be important, but I don't live on food alone. Amen? I don't live on food alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. It's like he was saying, yeah, listen, I could turn those stones into bread if I wanted to. I could do that, but I will not exercise my strength. I will not exercise my powers independently from what the Father wants me to do. I came because he sent me. I came to obey him who sent me to do his will. It's like Jesus was saying to Satan, you know, I hunger for a lot more than just food. I hunger for a lot more than that. I hunger to do my Father's will. It's like Jesus was saying, listen, I've got no reason, absolutely no reason to doubt my Father. This testing that I'm going through, it only makes me stronger. This testing that I'm going through, this hunger that I'm enduring, only makes me desire him more. It's like Jesus was saying, listen here, Satan. 
Listen here, you old tempter of old. Listen here, you devil. I experience God every moment I live, not just when I eat food. I experience the love of God every moment I live, not just when I get something from Him. Amen? My, my. So what does this temptation teach us? Well, it teaches us by example, praise God. He didn't just tell us. He showed us by example that we don't have to live. We don't have to live. But we do have to obey God. He taught us by example that the spiritual far outweighs the physical. The spiritual is more important than the physical. Are you a follower? Look at me. Are you a follower? Can you say in your life that your spiritual life far outweighs the physical? If you're a follower, it did to Jesus, and it should to us. See, getting bread is not the most important thing in this life. Obedience to every word of God is the most important thing in this life. You can only make a difference when you're in obedience to God's will. You can only make a difference in somebody else's life when you're in obedience to God. So we need to depend on him. He's trustworthy, amen? Can you remember a single time when God let you down? Think. Think back. Some of you got a long way to think, amen? Think back. When was the last time God let you down? When was the last time that God turned his back on you and said, forget you? Fend for yourself. I'm gone. If you want me to answer that question for you, I will. Because you wouldn't be breathing today had he turned his back on you the first time. My, my. So we need to depend on God. We need to trust him. But if you're anything like me and my type A personality, uh, I'm tempted to try and do it all by myself. Amen? Aren't we always tempted to do it ourselves? See, Satan's basic strategy is this. Listen, God can't be trusted, y'all. That's what the devil wants you to believe. God can't be trusted. You need to do it yourself. He pulled that junk in the garden. He said it to Adam and Eve. Do you really believe that God is that good? He pulled that junk with them. He said, he told you not to eat because he knew the minute you ate it, you'd be as wise as him. He pulled that junk on Adam and Eve. And he said, listen here, God ain't your friend. He said, God is holding out on you. He's trying to deny you. He's trying to hold back your goodness to you. He pulled that junk in the wilderness, speaking to Jesus. Satan said, just turn the stones into bread for crying out loud. Right? He said, he said, what is the big deal? 
You are the Son of God. Just do it. Just do it yourself. There's no law against turning rocks into bread. Why don't you do it? It won't hurt anything. How about this one? The law says it's okay. I know God says it's not, but the law says it's okay. Go ahead and do it. Can't you hear Satan saying to Jesus, Jesus, you have been without food for six weeks. Eat. Eat. And Jesus could have done it in an instant. In fact, his hunger, the hunger of his flesh, was screaming, Do it! Eat! But you see, sin gets its power by persuading me that I'm going to be a lot happier if I follow it. That's the age-old lie that sin brings into my life. Oh, you'll be so much happier if you just do it. See, the power of all temptation is in the prospect that it'll make me happier. God's trying to hold back from me. If I'll do this, I'll be happier. Me, I, myself, it's all about <clears throat> my, my. See, we often brag, friends, that we're people of the word. But are we really? Are we really? You see, it's not so much how much of this word you know. It's how much of this word are you going to apply to your life. What is the biggest drawback to the lost person? It's not how much of the word you know. It's how much of the word you're unwilling to apply to your life. And so the lost person sees you acting just like they do. And they say, why in the world would I want to join Bethel? I can stay in my living room and do the very same thing. They're doing. Are you applying the word of God to your life? See, Jesus lived the word. He lived it. He lived the word. His response to everything Satan fired at him was God said. Remember what mama said? I said. He said it's written. God said such and such. He would respond, hey, I ain't complaining. I'm not going to complain. Neither will I take matters into my own hands. I'm going to trust my father, and I'm going to trust him at his word. Period. Period. Now, I know that our temptation is not to try to turn stones into bread. But see, the impossible doesn't tempt us. We can't do it even if we wanted to. But the lure behind that temptation is still just as striking. The devil's ploy in our world 
is to somehow make us believe that if you want something done, you've got to do it yourself, and whatever you do, don't depend on God. And many of us, even in the church, fail to trust God. The temptation is just the same. Don't believe the lie. Now, I don't think I've ever done this in my years at Bethel. But I want to make every one of you an offer today. I want to make you an offer. Maybe you claim to be a believer, but you're not. Are you listening? Maybe you claim to be a believer, but you're not following Jesus. You're not a disciple. I just want to begin by saying I've got news for you. If you're not following Jesus, then you're not a believer. Do you know that? Because you, what you believe, you do. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, the Lord of your life, you're going to do what he asks you to do, true or false. That being the truth, I want to help you. An open invitation, an open offer for every single person here today. I want to help you. If you will let me know as you leave, you and I will begin meeting on a regular basis. Here, your living room, my living room, it matters not. We will begin to meet so that you can learn how a believer becomes a follower. I will give up of my time and say, I would like to disciple any of you that want to move from just belief to being a disciple. All you have to do, not even publicly, all you have to do is let me know on the way out and we'll arrange it. See, we're always tempted to do it ourselves. But it never happens. We say, I'm going to start studying the word every morning. And then that alarm clock goes off, and if you're like me, I go, <laughs> right? We always are tempted to do it ourselves, but Satan knows you well. He knows that alarm clock is awfully, awfully loud in the morning. So don't try to do it yourself. Come along somebody else that will lead you from being a believer in your mind to a follower with all your heart. And if you've never taken that first step, friend, don't try to save yourself from the penalty of sin by trying harder to be good. See, some people think that God has this heavenly chalkboard and he's got a line in the middle of that chalkboard and on this side the word good and on this side the word bad and when you do something good he takes a check mark over here and when you do something bad over here. And as long as your good check marks outweigh your bad check marks then you're going to heaven. 
That is the biggest lie that the enemy of God, the arch enemy of God, has ever persuaded on, the, on man. Don't try to save yourself from the penalty of sin. Neither should you ever think that you need to somehow get right before you come to Jesus. A person comes to my mind right now. You know her. And she doesn't come here because she doesn't think she's worthy. I'm not worthy to go to that church. I'm not good enough. Well, guess what? There's about 50 of us this morning that ain't good enough. And if it weren't for the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, none of us would have a hope. None of us would be worthy. But God says differently when we place our faith in him. What does he want? He wants you just the way you are. And then he wants to love on you enough not to leave you that way. You come. You let him do the changing. He will sanctify you. And friend... If you will just do that, if you'll just come to Jesus daily believing in him as Savior, daily repenting of our sin. Do you know that's probably the biggest misnomer in the Christian life? People think, oh, I just got to repent one time and I'm good. I'd be in trouble if that was the case because I have to repent every day. Every single day I have to repent of the sins of a bad attitude. I have to repent of the sins of an impure thought. I have to repent of something I said. I have to repent of something I did. Every day. In fact, that's how I know I'm a Christian. Because the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, that's not becoming to a child of God. You need to repent. So let us be believing every day. Let us be repenting every day. Let us be confessing not only in word, but in deed, that Jesus is Lord of your life. You see that transpiring in your life, then you'll know you're saved. But if you said some sinner's prayer when you were at vacation Bible school, when you were six years old, and then some preacher said, okay, you're saved. That's it. You don't have to have nothing to worry about. Then I'm sorry to tell you this. You bought into a lie. Salvation's more than some made-up sinner's prayer. Salvation is a life. A life that we work out in fear and in trembling for the rest of our lives. Brother Chad mentioned a great word in Sunday school. And he used the word lifestyle. Friend, what is your style of life? When somebody looks at you and they look at your style of life, they, do they say, you know, that person messes up every now and then, but then they tell me that they spend time on their knees confessing their shortfall. Do they think they're perfect? Do they always seem to be trying to please God in everything they do? Or is their lifestyle, their style of life, counter to what the Bible says. Which is it? The promise is that 
if we are believing day by day, repenting day by day, if we are confessing through word and deed day by day, that we will enjoy, we will be blessed, we will be honored with the greatest relationship, and I use that word relationship uh, imperatively, because there is no better relationship than a relationship where God is not only with me, Emmanuel, but he's in me as the Holy Spirit of God. Could there be a more intimate relationship than that? My question to you this morning is, do you have that? Do you believe? Do you confess that, not only with your words, but do you confess that in the way you live? I can't say that about you. That's something only you and your God in heaven know. But he calls you to a decision. And my prayer is, is that if you haven't made that decision, you will today. And don't forget my offer. Because once we believe and confess and repent and agree to do that for the rest of our lives, then we must also be discipled. It's just like being born. When you're born again, you're just newly hatched. Amen? But once you're hatched, well, then you got to grow. And that's what we do with discipleship. So if you want that, you let me know. But more important than that, if you want Jesus, you come and let us all know. Let me pray for you. Father God, we adore you. And we adore you because you first adored us. And that, Lord, even while we were still wretched, pathetic, filthy sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die, to shed blood for us. Lord, I praise you and I thank you with all my heart. And Lord, if there's been times in my life where I haven't lived like a, a man who believes that, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I pray you'd speak to us all this morning. Lord, help us all to examine our lives to see if we're truly in the faith. Only you can speak those words of life to us. So I pray today that you do a supernatural work. Lord, if there's people that just need to spend time with you at this altar, Lord, it's all for you. Lord, if there's those that need to come believing, repenting, and confessing in word or deed that you are the Lord of life, I pray that invitation would speak to them as only you can today. And Lord, for those desiring to be discipled, desiring to grow beyond a new hatchling, Lord, I pray, you would speak words of encouragement to them and they would desire to grow. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I thank you for the temptations of Jesus that showed me by example that he was willing to go through all the same junk I go through in my life and still obey your word. Help us to do the same. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said.